Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of Pole Position on History Hack. Uh, This is week four and finally... It's Alina's turn. Um, today, we're going to be talking primarily about the first transport, first mass transport to Auschwitz in uh, 1940, in the summer of 1940. And um, we've got lots of questions for her. Uh, Alina, you ready? I am ready. I'm actually really excited to finally be able to talk to you guys about my research. You I've have. Been sitting- in yeah. the background so yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you have listened to an awful lot i've put you through two football shows now lots of boat stuff uh so it's, it's about time we did yours right it's a somber subject um tell us about the first transport where did they come from uh mass transport there's first of all right the distinction is that there were 30 people in the camp before this first big transport came in so that's why we keep saying first mass transport isn't it um so tell us about this right. first mass transport um in on the 14th of june 1940 who are they where do they come from um and how do they get there how do they get to auschwitz so let's start with who they were basically these guys were being arrested for various different things they were trying to cross the border to get to the polish army they were caught up in roundups round basically the uh, Germans would come in, they'd block off two sides of the street and basically take everybody away. Um, they were involved in conspiracy. Some actually, the most horrible thing is they were actually dubbed in by their friends. And um, I was kind of a little bit shocked when I read some of these. And um, loads of people were doing this sort of thing. Um, also, there is, was action. Sorry, go for it. I was just going to ask, is this mass transport, is it solely Polish men? It, yes, it is all okay. men. They're all, They're Poles. all Polish men, right. but but there was a handful of Jewish Poles. Okay, and they were arrested not because they were Jews, but because they were Poles. They were either trying to cross borders again, roundups, conspiracy, caught for action, AB, various different reasons. Uh, one actually was uh, dubbed in with a group of friends, funnily enough, uh, and he actually ended up with his friends in the camp altogether but he didn't he didn't survive none of the pol- none of the jews from the first transport survived uh, they they didn't last very long and we'll talk about that in a, in a moment yeah why um <clears throat> some age. of them are very young aren't they yeah tell us about the exactly. age exactly exactly so we have in this whole transport we have 56 who are under 18 we have 440 who were between 18 and 24 and i want to mention the youngest prisoner who was stanislav he was only 14 years old and we have some just 
outstanding evidence about him. They don't actually mention him by name. But for example, when they were boarding the train, there was a prisoner who reminisced about uh, a young 14 year old boy because he was a boy. Yeah. And he was screaming and crying and in absolute hysterics on the train because he saw his mother. Yeah. He was in, he was from Tarnov and he saw his mother. I cannot imagine sending a 14 year old child, you know, with a group of 728 men to, to I mean, nobody knew where they were going, but it was just outstanding to understand this boy and he's mentioned a couple of times through different testimonies and different memoirs about a young boy crying and and just completely distraught because he saw his mother at the train station what did he do um, do you know I, no i he has put one of the questions on my research to find out more i mean i've only gotten to a certain point in this research and there's uh-huh. so much more so much more to look at and 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 to go through and i'm finding new things every day from various different archives around the world. I think, to be honest, I'm going to be working on this for a good another couple of years because it's really interesting. But we also had six 15-year-olds on there. I mean, these are children. They are deporting children, not just men, but children. Um, Break down for me. uh, Are they from across, like, the class strata? Uh, Or are they all working-class people? Or is it just indiscriminate? Completely across the board. I mean, you've got ex-military, you have teachers, you've got labourers, locksmiths, waiters, landowners, farmers, everybody. Everybody is being arrested and the predominant, they, predominantly they were students. Okay. Um, so talk to me about, so 753 set off from the Jewish bus, don't they, towards they Auschwitz? Do. But they don't so, all get there. They don't. So on the 13th of June, the day before they actually go to Auschwitz, they all get rounded out from uh, Tadmor prison, sent to Jewish baths. They were made to bathe, they were given food and basically prepared. They waited till the early hours of the morning of the 14th and 753 of them set off. But only 728 arrived in Auschwitz. What happens to the 25? Well, 24 were removed before they boarded the train and one actually escaped just outside of Knuckle. There's conflicting evidence, historians say different things, but I found about three or four people that have mentioned about the escape uh, mm-hmm. from, the, from the train. But again, historians, we all argue amongst different, various different things. But I, what I do want to tell you about is the way they marched through the streets. So basically the streets were empty. This was in the early hours. There was nobody out on the streets. If people are interested, you can actually Google the photographs of them marching through the street and you can't see a soul. All you do is see the prisoners marching with armed guards. But what's really interesting is various different things happened. So at one stage, a window opens and a woman waves. And the prisoner who remembered this was like, she was saying goodbye to us. It was quite a somber moment of, of them marching through the street. But funnily enough, my, uh, the cousin of my grandfather actually also witnessed this transport marching through the streets of Padmuk because my family actually lived there at the time. And he saw his uncle, so my great-grandfather's brother-in-law, marching in this transport. And he was the last person to actually see him alive. Because obviously, he, uh, for those who follow me on Twitter, know that my, my, my great-uncle died um, in 1942, unfortunately, from typhus. Um, it just beggars belief. It's so, 
they arrive in Auschwitz in the early afternoon, don't they? But they don't know they're going there. They don't know what Auschwitz is. And there's already 30 guys there. Who are the 30 guys that are already there? And how do they react to this large transport arriving? So basically, they're, they're traveling on this train to somewhere unknown. They have no idea where they're going. They're speculating. They go to Austria. They go to Germany. They go to work. Nobody truly knows that they're actually going to hell. And funnily enough, this what Pilar writes in his book, when they arrive in Auschwitz, um, the, the sign on the train station says Auschwitz Norschwenschen, and because obviously they changed the names, and he writes, he asks basically, where, where are we? Where, where, where is this place? And someone says, oh, some sort of shithole or other, which shouldn't really make you laugh at the beginning of a book, but it always does. And then I kind of revert back to this first 30 because that's the next stage of what happens. They see the first 30 prisoners. And I will tell you, nearly everybody, everybody will say that these first 30 prisoners look like um, sailors because they're dressed in stripes. Nobody knows what these stripes are. Nobody knows what concentration camps really and truly are. They get pulled off the train. They are shouted at. These first 30 prisoners who end up being the first 30 prisoners of uh, um, Cup of Auschwitz, they start beating them. And it's a, it's a shock to the system. They have no idea what is happening. Why are they being beaten? What is this place? And then obviously we go through to the registration process and of course they're being beaten. And it's, it's something I personally cannot imagine. I've stood in the place where they've arrived. I've walked the steps that they've walked and just not knowing where they are and what is happening. And it's incredible. It's, it's, it's actually unimaginable. They've arrived somewhere and immediately they're being uh, treated worse than they were. Exactly. Um, I mean, prison wasn't easy either. But uh, Kajimish Albin, for example, says, look, I survived prison. I survived Tardinov prison. If I can survive Tardinov prison, then I can survive Auschwitz. Um, Okay. so what is this speech apparently made by Carl Fritsch when they arrive? So this is debatable by historians. I have my own opinion. I'm going to tell you about my opinion first, but I'm going to read you this speech. Yeah, tell us the speech, so because people won't know um, unless they know this subject extremely well. So what is this alleged speech that is made to these prisoners when they arrive? So they arrive and they're given the speech by, by uh, Karl Fritz, which basically states, you came here not to a sanatorium, but to a German concentration camp, from which there is no other way out than through the chimney. If someone does not like it, they can go straight to the wires. If Jews are in this transport, they have the right to live for no more than two weeks. Priests for a month, Poles for three months. Okay, so one second. Who is Carl Fritsch? Carl uh, Fritsch is an SS officer. Okay. Um, that was brought in by uh, Huss, and uh, he is not one of the nicest people, obviously. Um, he, I think we should do a podcast on him alone, but that's a whole other issue. Um, we could, you know what, we could link it in with the uh, Nehemiah brothers from World War One and look at people who ran places like this across both wars. That would be fascinating. But, um, okay, there are immediate problems with this testimony, though, aren't there? There are. Not everybody says that it happened, uh, yeah. the spe- that the speech did happen. There are select prisoners that say that it did happen. But I have a problem with one sentence, which states, there is no other way out than through the chimney. We are now so, tell us why. Well, this is the 14th of June, 1940. They've arrived to not actually Auschwitz the way people see it now. Okay. There is no crematoria. This is Auschwitz one, isn't it? This is, so if you've this been is. to Auschwitz, this is not Birkenau, which is with the, the dual railway lines and the acres of 
of barracks this is the 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 original the red brick buildings um and it's very different isn't it to what people might immediately assume when they think of Auschwitz exactly and for example this place did not look like it did I mean it was completely built up by the poles that they built it to what it looks like today but there was no crematoria there was no chimney the crematoria didn't go into effect and didn't start working until August 1940 so which is about two months later so could it, this speech have been? Yes, it could have been, but it was probably phrased slightly differently. The prisoners probably heard from other prisoners. It, it varies. I am a 50-50 on this issue if it happened or if it didn't. So it's a bit like Chinese whispers, isn't it? Um, okay, right. Conditions in the camp. You've mentioned the beatings, but as they begin to, well, settle as much as they can, these uh, 700-odd men into Auschwitz, how does life play out? What's it like in there? What is life like in Auschwitz? Uh, the first two years were absolutely pure hell. Uh, pure, utter, just hell. They would go through daily beatings, the conditions, they had no place to sleep. They slept on straw, not even straw uh, mattresses, but just straw on the ground. They would lay literally one next to each other. There was barely any food. It, I mean, the camp conditions were so horrific that I don't understand how people actually survived. They were being exterminated by starvation, by heavy work, by heavy labour. Um, the camp hospital had nothing to help them with. You broke your leg, you're most likely going to die because they've got nothing to be able to help you with. Um, for example, you had the couple who were incredibly brutal. And for those of you who have listened, I've actually spoken about Bruno Brodniewicz, but I want to basically read out a testimony by Eugeniusz uh, Tzibar, yeah, do right. so. Um, yeah, so th- just for people who haven't heard, on the Down the Pub, you put this guy forward as the nastiest villain in history, um, and he, you gave us a description of something he did um, involving a shovel on people's necks and that. But yeah, so for the purposes of, of, a, of a proper interview, um, tell us what people said about him. So, Gunnar Sabar basically states that on Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve, people, 1940, the inmates who worked in the kitchen were singing which is the Polish national anthem. Uh, Poland has not yet been lost. And one of the Poles basically wanted to report this to the camp authorities. And Bruno Brodniewicz, prisoner number one, the most brutal, sadistic person, well, one of the most brutal, sadistic people that I've ever come across, he finished off the informer by taking him to a bath. And I quote exactly what Elgenius Stiba says. By taking him to the bath, putting a hose pipe in his mouth and running the water until he died. Brodniewicz did that with other prisoners who were absolutely innocent. He just kills for the, the fun of killing. Tell people about the shovel if, in case they didn't hear the down the pub. So his, one of his favourite things was to basically beat a prisoner um, to the point of unconsciousness. And he would take a shovel or a broom or anything that basically had a pole, lay it across their neck, stand either side, seesaw until their neck broke. So, I mean, he is he is by far the standout sadistic bastard um, in your research. But he's not alone in terms of, of Polish capos treating other poles from this first mass transport like this, is he? No, I do have. I'm going to leave this for my book because yep. he is uh, he is a pole. Um, he is not the nicest person. He actually arrives on the first transport. 
And I spent a lot of time researching into this guy. I've gone to various archives around Poland to try and get more information because he actually is as stupid as he is during the, the Second World War. He is as stupid in the communist period because he actually ends up going to prison twice. Um, which is, for me, I'm sorry that I'm laughing, but just the stupidity of what he does after the war is just ridiculous. But anyway, I will leave that for you guys to read in my book when I when I finally get down to writing it. So definitely right okay uh, just before we've got lots of questions from people um before we move on to those what are the statistics like for the first transport we know that your great uncle doesn't survive but out of those 728 in the first transport what kind of numbers are you looking at for survival we have what? a slight problem because yeah. we don't have complete statistics there are massive massive gaps in the statistics where we can't be 100 percent sure of if prisoners survived or not so from the statistics I have and I have personally analysed, other historians may have found different conclusions. From my conclusions, it's about 42% that survive. Okay. Um, STME would like to know, the transportation was from my wife's hometown of Tarnov. Please can you explain why this town was chosen for the first deportation? We can only speculate. There is no actual official documents to understand why. Um, for me, I believe that Tarnov was the smaller town. Krakow had a much larger, larger prison. However, you've got more people in, in Krakow. You have more witnesses in Krakow. Tarnov um, was smaller and there was less chance of people being able to see what was happening. Um, there, there, there could be various reasons. It could have just been chosen because it was uh, right in the middle. So between Zakopane, between Krakow, Zeshov, uh, um, Shemis, all of those basically different places where there were people being incarcerated and where people actually came from the prison so it could be any of those reasons and if somebody wants to be able to challenge me on this I'd be grateful go for it yeah it'd be nice to know wouldn't it um James would like to know uh, and I, I want you to answer this because it, it highlights um, perhaps people's um, no offense James but lack of knowledge when it comes to the early period at Auschwitz so he wanted to know how many of this transport came from ghettos compared to how many were transferred from other concentration camps the simple answer for this none that is okay. the most simplistic answer however I'm going to just slightly expand on this they all came from prisons as I spoke earlier they were part of Axion Arber AB sorry in in English they were being taken from uh, the borders and all different places ghettos were being set up at this point but they were Poles who were coming to concentration camps. So how, how far that down the line do you have to go for James before they start bringing in people from ghettos and other concentration camps? Is that much further on in the history of the camp? 1942. Okay, so for the uh, first two years, you're not looking at ghettos and smaller camps being, uh, like concentration camps being concentrated in this larger one then? Well, the first transport of women was actually from Ravensbrück. Uh, 999 women were brought in from Ravensbrück uh, on the 26th of March, 1942, if I'm not mistaken. And somebody will probably correct me on that. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they were actually being brought in from another concentration camp, which was in the Third Reich at the time. Okay, cool. So that's, I mean, that's educated me as well. Thanks for that, James, because um, I, I do feel it's important that people understand sort of the, the evolution of it. Um, Izzy would like to know why there's been so little research on the first transport till now. 
I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, I'm going to start with one answer and then I'm going to expand on it. So mm-hmm. the simplistic idea is the first transport got the best jobs, best positions. They had the, the highest point in the hierarchy in the camp hierarchy. And that is what pretty much every historian says. Yes, it is true. It is completely and utterly true. However, there is so much more we can expand on this. People haven't looked at how these men survived. Yes, they were given great positions. Yes, they had a higher number. They got more respect from other prisoners, from the SS, from Kapo. I don't don't mean life was easy for them because it was not easy. I need to really underline that. It was not easy. I think what it is, is it gets so much worse after the first transport that the tendency has been, hasn't it, to look at, the the very worst of it and to overlook these guys at the beginning because we're not belittling what happened to them at all but it does get so much more terrible and more unbelievable as the war goes on which is probably why they've fallen through the cracks exactly and the really interesting thing is if you read Piletsky's report he actually complains about the first transport where he says that they've taken all the best jobs and what do we have? We've got nothing. You know, the, these prisoners that were coming in after the first transport, first transfer, or sir, um, were getting nothing. They had to have the lower menial jobs and had to work their way up to better jobs and better connections. And there's so much more we can talk about this, but um, we could do that. We can literally do a whole other uh, podcast just yeah, in line just- of the survival. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah, okay. Um, just verify. So Poletsky's a later prisoner arriving. Yes, he arrives in September 1940. But he lives, um, leaves behind uh, copious amounts of uh, testimony, doesn't he, that you can use? He does, he does. Unfortunately, he was executed by the communists, uh, which is, again, we should really try and get Jack Fairweather. Jack Fairweather, if you are listening, we want you on this to talk about Poletsky because that would be an absolutely amazing podcast. Definitely. Okay, uh, Martin would like to know, from this transport, what was the most interesting escape? Okay, so everybody has their own opinion on this. For me, I'm going to tell you about Komsky, Kuzel, Kuchbara and Yamoshevsky. They escaped on the 29th of December 1942. And Komsky is quite famous in this whole story so people who are listening already said yeah we already know about Komsky but I'm going to tell everybody who doesn't know who Komsky was he and Kutubara prepped the whole escape basically they made contact with the home army where they organized clothing they organized maps they organized 
food, everything that they would need to be able to escape. So the clever thing is Otto Kuzel is prisoner number two, prisoner number two of the couple, the first 30 that I spoke of. Again, he himself alone deserves a whole podcast. This man is just incredible. But I'm not going to talk about how incredible he is because, again, I will ramble on forever. So Otto Kuzel worked for the... Um, my mind has gone completely blank with English. I do apologise. He worked for the... Um, jobs uh section apologies if i've used the incorrect wording because i'm trying to translate so he's basically working for a, the employment yes agency. that's exactly okay. that is the word i was looking for thank you so much i do apologize right. and he was quite well known so everybody knew who he was within the camp so he could move about quite pretty freely and the other three guys also worked in the same office with him so again they had a little bit of freedom they actually managed to collect a whole ss uniform which is incredible. I managed to hide it, which in itself is incredible. And Kuchbara actually ended up dressing up as the SS officer. He used a torch in place of a gun so that, you know, nobody would become suspicious. He ended up dressing as he was with Konski. Otto Kuzel hired a horse and a cart with two wardrobes on the back. So they were moving, you know, they could be moving things around for somebody or, you know, they could invent some sort of story. And they literally rode out the gate. Komsky, Kuzel, Kutubara, and Yanushevsky. They just, just straight out the gate. Nobody stopped them. They passed a checkpoint. They passed a checkpoint pretty well. Um, they abandoned the horse and cart. They managed to reach uh, Libyange. And then they got to the house of Andrzej uh, Harat, who was the leader of the Home Army in Oshenshin. insane. Just, Some of it, sometimes it is best to just when you're doing something like that, like fronting it out is the best way, isn't it? It's Act like incredible. you're supposed to be somewhere and people will believe that you are. Exactly. And they just did it. But the, the really sad thing is this doesn't really end well for everybody. Um, Komsky ends up getting caught in a roundup with Januszewski. Komsky actually um, gets sent back to Auschwitz, but he's under a pseudonym at the time, thankfully. And he manages to get himself out because if he was found out, they would have executed him. Uh, he survives. Januszewski, unfortunately, um, the rumours are he killed himself on the way to Auschwitz um, because obviously he would have gone through execution. Kuzel was caught in Warsaw and sent back to Auschwitz. He survives mainly because he's a German. They wouldn't execute a German. Kuchbara, there's conflicting evidence on what happens to Kuchbara. He was sent to Padiak prison. One of the stories says that his wife came to visit him after he was heavily beaten during interrogation and gave him poison. Another one says he was killed by the Gestapo. So we don't really know what happened to Kuchbara in the end. Okay. Um, right, Paul would like to know, my question would be about the people who lived near the camp and those who built slash prepared it. What exactly were they aware of at that point of the war? And would anyone truly know how big the whole sordid operation became? Okay, to talk about this, we're going to have to go pre-World War One. Completely, we're going to have to go back in time. So before World War One, obviously Poland didn't exist. Um, it was taken apart by uh, Germany, Russia and Austria. At the time, Oshvenshin was in Austria, near the German-Austrian border. It was an incredible hub for uh, migrants. It was a transport hub. It had uh, railway networks. So you could go to Austria and Germany and various different places. 
So what the government did at the time is they built uh, wooden barracks and brick barracks. And the brick barracks that we see today is the main camp in Auschwitz. We don't see the wooden barracks because they were taken apart and various other different things. It ended up turning into Bauhof, which was the, um, again, my complete English has gone out the window, um, storage department, the Bauhof okay. area. So we've got all these migrants who are living there. Up comes the First World War. The borders get completely moved and all these migrants disappear. So basically the locals start to move into these places. The barracks, the wooden barracks we're talking about is if anybody has been to Auschwitz, if you stand with the museum to your back, where you have the hotel in that sort of direction, that's where all the wooden barracks were. So you had people living in close proximity. The army basically take over the um, brick barracks, so it becomes part of the army, and the wooden barracks accommodate basically the civilian population. Auschwitz gets chosen for its purpose, unfortunately. And on the 19th of June, only a few days after the first transport arrived, the civilian population is forced out. 250 people are deported for forced labor in Germany. The rest are relocated. But we don't talk about the people that were forced into forced labor. They are the forgotten victims of Auschwitz, even though they weren't in the camp themselves. These people went through pure hell in Germany. They were into forced labor. Half of them didn't survive. If they came back from forced labor and escaped, they were sent into the camp. They lost their homes. They lost their property. They lost everything absolutely everything so this doesn't the relocation does not stop there um on the 8th of july zasole which is the other side uh, of where the camp is uh, the main camp these people again forced into forced labor they were basically taken into this big house and half the people was told to stand on the left half the people were told, told to stand on the right the right were allowed to go home and the people on the left were basically sent into forced labor they could only take the most essential items the houses were either taken apart or reused for offices or for in the future they were used for housing the workers that worked at Monovica. <clears throat> and these people basically have lost everything it goes on the evictions carry on in march 1941 then more evictions and more evictions and the camp basically the um, interest of the camp just grows and grows and grows. Then you've got Bieder Canal. Everybody was being evicted. There were no civilians in the area. When people ask why, you know, what, what, what were these, all these people doing while this was going on? Well, there was no civilians. There was no people there. Nobody was living in these areas. They were either being deported into the general government. They were either being deported into Germany. The most key workers were kept, for example, if you worked in the mines, you went and were moved close to Brzezka or anywhere else that was local that you were needed. It's, it's just unbelievable. These people were coming home after the war to find out everything they had was gone. Everything. Their houses, their farming equipment, their pigs, their cows, everything was taken away and reused for the camp. I mean, it's a very important point that you kind of, there's this idea that people might have just watched all this happening around them and um, actually 
they are victims as well, aren't they? Um, okay, right. Uh, Jay would like to know, uh, I've often wondered why in later transports, when some had an idea of what was going to happen, why they didn't rise up. Uh, some definitely would have been killed, but the SS w- would have been outnumbered if the whole camp had rise, like, rose up against them. What are your thoughts? I really want to hear your answer to this one. I'm going to give you a very simplistic answer and then I'm going to let everybody make their own assumptions for this. Okay. So there was an escape from the SS kitchen by a group of prisoners and um, the Cross brothers were one and Albin, Kajimish um, Albin, sorry, apologies, was another. After their escape, the Cross brothers' parents were brought into Auschwitz, as was Albin's mother. They used terror. They weren't going to rise up because they feared for their families. They feared for their friends. Um, at the beginning of the camp, if you'd escaped, they would have taken 10 prisoners, either from your work detail or from your barrack, and executed them. That's why they didn't rise up. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds pretty straightforward to me. I mean, obviously, they are ruling with terror, aren't they? Um, Zach would like to know, let, let's just move away from and talk a couple I've got a couple of general questions for you Zach would like to know if you could educate people about one little known or incorrectly remembered element of the holocaust what would it be and why I mean I suspect you're doing this by covering the first transport in the first place but um, I know that you feel passionately about other groups um, that haven't been spoken of as much as the Jews that went to Auschwitz of course I'm never going to say anything negative of what happened in the holocaust I mean it's a horrific horrific thing that happened but we cannot, cannot forget the other victims. I mean, homosexuals, for example, they're a very, very small group, but however, they were still persecuted. The gypsies, we seem to completely forget about the gypsies. They were also being gassed in the gas chambers. The living conditions in the gypsy camp in Birkenau was just unbelievably horrific. These people were literally dying of starvation. Uh, we don't talk about the Soviet prisoners of war. I mean... The Soviets and the Poles were the first ones to be tried and gassed in Auschwitz in September 1941. Uh, We're forgetting how these men were treated. There was 15,000 Soviet prisoners of war went to Auschwitz. And it was something ridiculous, like 100 of them survived. 100 out of 15,000 people. They were worked to death. I mean, some of the memoirs I've read about the treatment of these Soviet prisoners of war makes you sick to your stomach. And this was only in 1941 and 1942. They were the ones building Birkenau. Um, we also forget about the Poles. Again, this is what I am doing, exactly what you've said. This is exactly what I am doing right now. And I'm trying to make people aware that there were Poles. They were the first. They went through hell. They may not have been exterminated, but they were exterminated in a completely different way. Okay. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I, I want to ask you, actually, there's huge contention isn't there and obviously Auschwitz is in Poland but it is completely incorrect to to refer to Polish concentration camps isn't it it's it's considered offensive it is it is considered offensive because they weren't they were German Nazi concentration camps at the end of the day Poles were victims within these camps and people need to make sure that the terminology is right because you cannot mix up a victim with a perpetrator. And this becomes, it becomes, I'm not going to discuss it in detail because it becomes very political and it's incredibly damaging around the world to people. And people need to be aware to use the word 
German Nazi concentration camps. They were not Polish. They weren't even on Polish territory. They were, it was on Polish territory that was annexed into the Third Reich. Poland yeah. did not exist at the time. I, I had to ask that because I know you're embroiled in a, one of your Twitter rails at the moment over it. Um, Red would like to know, it says, Alina, I'm currently reading the amazing story of Witold Pilecki. Who from this era would you choose to write a book about? Well, simplistically, my grandfather, because he's just awesome. Um, he was uh, the general in charge of the defence of Lvov, yeah? That's actually his father. Um, okay. So actually, yes, I would probably write a book about both because uh, the general in charge of Lvov and also my grandfather, who was in the Warsaw Uprising and he was also a soldier uh, during the occupation and he did all sorts of incredible actions and executions and all these sorts of things that just seem like a movie, basically. It's just a film. In, in my head, it's incredible. But the other person I would, and I, and I, there's something I'm really incredibly passionate about is the Otto Kuzad that I mentioned before, the uh, prisoner number two who arrived in the first 30. And he is just an incredible human being and he has had no recognition in um, historical literature, in academia. And he's actually one of my next projects that I'm gonna be working on because he deserves a huge platform and if his family is listening to this please get in contact because i would love to be able to talk to you um i love it please do contact her because then she'll stop complaining about how she doesn't know you to me um you're chosen <laughs> right this uh, this is a serious question i mean you are bonkers um but let's explain to people why that might be so your chosen area of history it's deeply interesting and it's important. And like you say, people need to know this stuff, but it is harrowing. I mean, I do the First World War. I wouldn't touch your subject with a barge pole. Um, just the sheer cruelty that humanity inflicts on itself in this. Um, how do you not let it get to you? I mean, I, you've got a black sense of humour. Let's not lie. Um, and soldiers have that. And First World War historians have that because you have to find a way to process it. But how do you stop yourself from becoming absolutely bogged down by the inhumanity of all of this i i'm not gonna lie i've had moments where i've literally put books down and said nope i'm i'm leaving this for a week i just can't do this anymore um i, I do suffer from nightmares it is it, it's something that just comes with the job at the end of the day but i have outs so i have really great friends like you alex um, who make me laugh. I listen to comedy. I go out on the motorbike. The motorbike is one of the most amazing therapies you could ever think of. You go to the gym, you get out of the, being in the house is the worst possible thing. You get out of the house, you do things, you go out with friends, you live life. And I live life because what I read, life is short, life is cruel, it is brutal. So why not live it? I mean, we started this podcast to stop you from going mad sitting in your house, didn't we? Let's have a exactly. couple of light-hearted questions. Uh, Steve would like to know, which famous historical motorcycle enthusiast would you like to go on a ride with and why? Would it be Lawrence of Arabia, Steve McQueen, Evil Knievel? Do you know, I actually misread the question the first time round, and um, I wanted to say, um, Guy, why has my mind gone completely blank to this? Um, I want to say Guy Walters. It's not Guy Walters because it's... <laughs> I'm just going to say, Lawrence of Arabia, no, because his track record of staying upright on a motorbike speaks for itself. Um, so rule him out. <laughs> well, Steve McQueen is pretty cool because he does all that amazing stuff in, in, in The Great Escape. 
which obviously was kind of uh, didn't the guys do they did a program about it didn't they and they completely dispelled that it was possible uh, either that or we we did kind of dispel it as impossible when we talked about Nazi conspiracies with Guy and Luke oh, yeah, we as did, well. We did. But Steve McQueen. I think it'd be Steve McQueen because he looks pretty cool and, and I like him. So it'd be Steve McQueen. Let's go with Steve McQueen. I'm pretty sure you'd have him riding behind you though because I, I know you. Um, right. You are sitting in a Hollywood producer's <laughs> office, right? Discussing which actress is going to play you and me in the film, The History Hack. Who would you choose to play you? And it says, for your information, is there, if there is a cameo, because Steve asked this, our artwork person, if there is a cameo appearance for the drawing guy, he'll take Robert Downey Jr., Jack Black, or the guy who plays the Hulk before he turns in the Hulk, just saying. I think that's a little bit of wishful thinking. Who's going to play you? Do you know what? I can't. I can't answer this question, but I can answer your question. Oh, you're going to cast me? I'm going to cast you. because. Uh, All right, and then I'll I'll cast cast you. Go on then. Right, okay. You ready? Yeah. Megan Fox. She can't act, man. She's terrible. Yeah, but she's really pretty. Okay, fine. If, okay, if we're going to talk about actresses that can act, would you Sandra Bullock? Are you serious? She's like, old enough to be my mum. Right, in I that case, care. I'm casting <laughs> Dame Maggie Smith as you. She can ride a motorbike. Care. Or Judy Dench. You can, Judy Dench, if you're listening and you'd like to play Alina in a biopic of her life, get in touch. Do you know what? Sorry, they are incredible yeah. actresses, so I Jesus really, I am going to take that. I'm Everybody take... we've mentioned, apart from Megan Fox, is an incredible actress. No offence, Megan, but you didn't get cast for your skills. Um, Alina, this has been brilliant. I've, I've learnt loads. I think it was really important that we gave you a platform to talk about what you do. Um, and obviously there, there's so much more to be said about the Holocaust on History Hack at some point and uh, some of the characters you've mentioned. Um, who do we have next week on Pole Position? Next week, we actually have a friend of mine, Juliet, who, uh, Breton, if I'm pronouncing your name correctly, because I might be completely incorrectly pronouncing it, it's a journalist, and uh, we're going to be talking, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, about the Polish tango. So we're going completely out of the box for next week, because, do you know what, we've had enough of World War II, so let's We have done all World War II so far on pole position. Um, So is she actually talking about dancing? Um, we will, we probably will be, but she will correct me if I'm completely wrong, and we will retweet the correct answer. Excellent, cool. Well, whatever she's going to talk about, um, she's uh, very knowledgeable on a number of subjects. We look forward to it. Uh, join us later on today when we will be launching a bit of an oral history initiative on History Hack. We have Peter Hart and Gary Bain. It's a mashup with Peter Hart's military history. It is quite frankly insane. Um, Somewhere in there, there are some fantastic lessons on how to use oral history, how to coax the best information out of people, how to tell what's reliable and what isn't. There's some great lessons in there amongst the chaos. I'm warning you now. And then tonight we go down the pub. This was Alina's worst nightmare when we taped this last night. We played historical fantasy football. We spent nigh on two hours trying to decide who would be on the greatest football team in history and came up with a team that I picked and not even I agree with. Um, So tune in because we talk about lots of players. We also have a lot of fun on that program probably don't listen if you're Roy Keane or Steve Bruce or Ryan Giggs because we weren't really that nice about you Uh, until then stay safe if you possibly can stay at home this is Nighthawk signing off 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.